That truth ought to brighten up your soul on a very cold morning. It was four degrees when I came in today. What's it out there now? It's warmer, right? It's five? Somebody said that? Okay, great. I'm going to ask you to go to Mark chapter four with me, if you would, if you have your Bible with you. Or, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Um, Jesus is still talking about last days and, and the second coming in this particular parable that we're looking at. We're in the parables for uh, about three more weeks, roughly four more weeks. And uh, these last parables are all talking about um, the second coming as he uses the last two days of his life before he's crucified to deliver this information. I'm going to ask you if you would to pray with me before we step into this. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask that you would use this opportunity this morning to bring fresh wind into the sails of every single person who's in this auditorium and every person who's watching virtually. We, we would ask for a renewed zeal that the power of the Holy Spirit would be um, so prevalent in this place that you would ignite, that you would use this to inspire us. God, also that you would use it to encourage us and remind us of our responsibility before you. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. If you track the growth of New Hope um, over the last 14 years, even though we're a very young church, you'll see a very specific pattern to our growth. And if you look closely over the past 14 years, you'll see that the attendance, having started with 20 or 30 people in 2007, has just spiked upward to the right except for one particular year. There was one year in which we didn't grow at all, and that was in 2010. And in 2010 is when I taught the book of Revelation, <laughs> right? And so it, it, for many people, um, the end times and the last days, the second coming, is kind of a non-starter. Um, many people will hear that phrase, and I'm talking about across the planet, around, around the globe. Many people will hear those thoughts and say, yeah, I'm out. I'll, I'll come back another time. I'm not really interested in that. I would go so far as to say that if you're actually interested in the last days and the second coming, and you are interested in what the Bible has to say about that, you're the exception, not the rule. You're, you're part of a pretty small group of individuals because most people don't really want to go there. They don't like what it's saying. I've had people approach me after each service saying, well, that's really scary stuff. I, I don't know that I've really paid attention to it before. Well, likely, if you are interested in it, it speaks to your personal maturity level in the Word of God and in the walk with the Holy Spirit, that God's growing you, and you know that there's a definite end to things, and that this is not all that there is. The events of the world are not random circumstances, but God really does have a plan. In light of that, wherever you happen to land on the issue of second coming and the, and the end times things, know this. Jesus considered it so important that he spent the final two days, three days of his life talking about these very issues, speaking over and over and over about the reality that Jesus is coming again. If you agree with that, say amen. You'll get a chance to say amen several times this morning because you're going to hear that very issue come up constantly. Here's why I raise that. For God to be God... It has to happen. See, all of the Bible points to these things that we're looking at today. All of the Bible points to this. Jesus spends this energy and this time talking about it, 
because it's going to happen. So for all of the things in the Bible to be true except for this thing, then the Bible fails. The Word of God would fail if these issues are not a reality. So it's not a question for a believer whether or not these things are a reality. The return of Jesus has to happen or God's not God and God is not in control. The term that I introduced to you last week, maybe you're new to church or newer to the Bible on these things, is a, a Greek word called the parousia. You see this particular word on the screen, and it's in your notes this morning. If you didn't get a set of the notes, you can download them. You can use the QR code, or you can you grab paper notes that are in the back of the atrium on the table back there. It would be very helpful to you. And don't feel like you can't get up during the service and get those. You're welcome to do that. This, this word parousia is talking about uh, being near. And whatever you see the phrase, the second coming of Jesus or the day of the Lord, it's talking about this word, the parousia. Although we learned last week that we don't know when exactly it's going to happen, the thing that we can say is that it will happen. And so Jesus gave multiple signs, indicators, so you would know when that was arriving. What we can do, if you're a believer in Jesus, what you can do is be aware and be watchful of the times that you live in. In other words, be alert as you're gonna see him saying over and over again, to the degree that you're prepared, to the degree that it impacts how you live and the decisions that you'll make today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the way that you carry out the functions of your life. Let me just frame the context for you. Mark writes about it in chapter 13, as you saw last week and the week before, it's written about in Matthew 24, and if you're interested, you can also look in Luke chapter 21. They all capture the same setting, and the setting is this, Jesus is sitting on a piece of ground known as the Mount of Olives. He's been in the temple complex, and he's been teaching about the coming of the kingdom and kingdom issues. He leaves the temple complex, walks outside the gates of Jerusalem, climbs a mountain, and sits on the side of it and delivers what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse that's captured in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, he talks for a long time about the signs of the times, the second coming, the last days, and he delivers it over and over and over again. So we see this framed for us from last week, Mark 24, or Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture this, they parallel each other, they parallel the Olivet Discourse. And as a result of their questions, Jesus has been speaking of both the near future and the distant future. In the near future is 70 A.D., and 70 A.D. is looming before them like a freight train when Jesus begins speaking about the destruction of the nation of Israel. Rome swoops in, destroys the nation, they're scattered all over the earth, and they don't come back together again as a nation until 1948. That's the near future. But from their vantage point in 33 A.D., when he begins talking about the tribulation and the rapture of the church and the second coming, that's the distant future. And they don't know that it's thousands of years away. It's a distant future, and he's saying it also in light of a near future. So what he does is he brings to the forefront this description of the end of human history in a seven-year concentrated period of time known as the tribulation. You see it referred to in Matthew 24, verse 21. 
This is Jesus speaking. From then, therefore, then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Well, allow me just to summarize for you, just in case you didn't get a chance to read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, just six things that Jesus said. You'll see these appear up on the screen. These are the things that he said will happen in the last days. He says, There will be an increase in religious deception, there will be false teachers, in other words. He said there will be a persecution of believers in the last days. There will be man-made disasters. And by that specifically, I mean he begins talking about nations rising against nations, kingdoms coming against kingdom. And then he says not just man-made disasters, there will also be natural disasters. And he begins talking about earthquakes and famines and the darkening of the sun and the darkening of the moon. And as we read in Revelation, we're told that also one-third of the planet's surface is consumed by fire. And so one-third of the population of the planet is destroyed. The planet becomes such a tinderbox, so dry, that it goes up in flames, and that many people are killed. As horrible as all those things are, the next two are the ones that really, really bother me. Even beyond that, the next one is demon-inflicted disaster because the Bible paints this picture of the hordes of hell being released upon this planet to inflict incredible agony. But that's not the worst one to me. The worst one is the one that we just barely touched on last week when Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be removed from the planet during that time. He would be restrained or removed. The one who restrains sin now will be gone. And the outcome of that is the loss of love. The love of man will go cold towards each other. Can you imagine living on a planet where you might think things are difficult and you might think we, we see things differently and we disagree with people, but can you imagine living in a place where there's no love whatsoever? And Jesus says that's a reality of those last days. Those are the things that cause people to say, that is an incredibly scary time to live. Well, the purpose of Jesus delivering all of this information is not to scare people. It's to exhort believers. It's to exhort you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to be alert and be prepared. And he shares all this not just for the sake of information, but to instill obedience in believers. Because the responsibility of Jesus' people, of people who are believers, is to be busy about his work. Let's move forward now and see the things that he says and just remind yourself of some of the things we've looked at and then we'll dive into that new parable. It's a very short parable coming up. Mark 13, 32 starts this way. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, we touched on that last week and even though that's completely true, we explored that at length. There's the reality that that truth hasn't stopped people from making ridiculous predictions. And I can go all the way back to the 1800s. People have been doing it since within 90 years of Jesus leaving this planet. But going back, let's say just to 1814, Joseph Smith, who established Mormonism, he said, no, I think he's coming in 1814. And when that didn't happen, he said, 1832. No, I didn't mean 1832 because that didn't happen. I think it's, we're going to go with 1833. And then he said 1890. And then he said 1891. He's not the only one, though. Along came some other individuals known as the Millerites, and they started going with 1840, 1843, 1845. And then came the Seventh-day Adventists, and they went with 1880 and 1886. And, and yet the most famous ones are probably the Jehovah's Witness. 
because they started going with 1915 and then 1916 and 1917, 1921, 1925, 1929, 1945. And when that didn't happen, they advanced it to 1990. And then that didn't happen, and now they're working on a new date right now. Here's the truth. No one knows. Jesus said, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know, and they're nearest the throne. No one knows. So he uses this Old Testament expression in describing this. He says that phrase, that day, but concerning that day. Well, in the New Testament, that day is referring to the day of the Lord. When you see the phrase that day as you're reading the Bible, it's talking about the second coming, that day. Look with me on the screen, Amos 8 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, that day, just a two-word phrase, that day is the parousia. It's the coming near. It's that Greek word that you looked at with me. Now, understand this, that day and the second coming, I've had to clarify this over the last two weeks as we've been working through this, because people are wondering, am I mixing this with the rapture? No, this is a different event. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus are two different events. This parable that we're looking at right here in Mark is referring to the return of Jesus to this planet, the second coming of Jesus. And the Bible over and over again says it's going to happen. It doesn't say how long before the clock runs out. Here's what it does say and what you're going to see in just a moment. What it says is what you're supposed to be doing. What am I supposed to do while we're waiting for that day, while I'm watching for that? And here's where Jesus goes, Mark 13, 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. How many here still use a paper calendar? You like to write your dates down. A few of you, okay, you probably have a certain age group when you say yes to that. Um, my, my wife likes to do both. Lori likes to write dates down and she likes to put it in her phone. And many people use it electronically and write down everything in their calendar and they don't mind getting buzzed all the time. Lori likes, likes looking at a calendar and she likes getting the buzz alerts on her phone. Uh, many people know that when they've got something written down, it's an appointed time. You're going to the dentist. You write down the specific time you're supposed to be there. The word that Jesus uses here is kairos. Kairos is the word that speaks of a specific time. In other words, what we're talking about is God has a calendar date, a date that he has chosen that's known only to him, that he isn't revealing to anyone else, but it's a date that's appointed. It's already been chosen since the foundation of this world. Now, Jesus, that's just a detail, by the way. Jesus now uses some military terms when he begins talking to his people. Let's look with me on the screen at these military terms when he begins talking about guard duty. He says, be on guard. Now, be on guard is talking about someone who's been given an assignment from a superior officer. If you have any military experience, you know a veteran. Veterans know what it is to see a guard at the gate. They know what it is to see military police. Guards have been given a specific duty. The Greek word that's in your notes this morning is blepo. And blepo is talking about this very same word that Jesus uses here, this guard duty responsibility, to look at on guard, to behold, to beware. Well, here's something that has to be true of a guard. They have to know what they're on guard for. If you have a guard dog and you want a guard dog to watch for criminals coming on your property, to watch for burglars, 
You don't want that dog going after squirrels all the time, right? You want that dog to be trained to go after the thing it's trained for, not to be distracted. So a guard has to be discerning. In other words, they have to be knowing what to watch for. And that's the phrase that Jesus is using here. Someone who's discerning what they're watching for. And then he uses verse 33 to emphasize this part. That's the second military command, keep awake. So not just be a guard, but keep awake. Agrophaneo is the next Greek word that goes with that. And by the way, I'm not trying to teach you the Greek language. That's not my goal. It just helps understand the definition of what he's talking about here. What is the thought that Jesus is using? To be sleepless, it says, to keep awake. Uh, many people suffer with sleeplessness as it is. They don't want Jesus to be telling them to be sleepless. So we under need to understand he's, he's not talking about physically staying awake, right? He's not talking about going 24 hours without sleep. He's using this phraseology because he wants us to understand what he's talking about when he says constantly awake is to be determined. If you're on guard duty and you're discerning, and you know what you're watching for, you also have to be very determined to stay focused because there's so many distractions, things that can pull your attention away, that keep you from being focused on the very thing you've been commanded to be focused on. There's an example of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. Let me show you the way that he used this word. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, there's the phrase, Keep alert, agrippineo, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul isn't saying stay awake 24 hours a day praying. He's saying be very determined, diligent about your prayer life, being in prayer for the saints and for yourself. Now, shortly, Jesus is going to add a third command. You'll see it in the next verse. So in regards to what do I do then? What do I do during this period of time? We got this command from our master to his people, and he uses military terms. He's saying to his people, you're on guard duty, and your assignment is to be alert, to be vigilant, to be discerning, to be watchful. That's your assignment. So it helps many times to see things and read them. Let me just show you this on the screen. These are the three that are coming out as commands from him. The first is discernment. The second is wakefulness, that determination to stay awake. And the third is vigilance. You're going to see that in just a moment. And the parable that you're about to see, although it's only one sentence long, this parable reinforces that call that he's giving. He's saying, you execute this task, people. You carry out this responsibility. And if you don't do that, to be distracted, whether willingly or carelessly, is a dereliction of duty. If you're in the military and you're on guard and you've got guard duty, if you're found to not be on guard and not be responsible, you're charged with dereliction of duty. We have a commander here using military terms saying, here's what I expect of you to do, church. And then he uses this parable. Verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. I hope what you saw as, you, as you're reading that verse, you see the, the privilege in that responsibility, and you see the responsibility. The privilege is the charge and the responsibility is the work. Let me explain, explain to you what I mean. 
We have a wealthy landowner in the, in the first century. He, he's an owner of a state. He's going to journey. He doesn't tell his people how long he's going to journey. They don't know if he's going to be gone a day or if he's going to be gone years. And so he chooses the employees under his care, the people who work for him in his household, and he puts them in charge, and he gives them a specific set of responsibilities because there's work to be done. So verse 34 says, he puts his servants in charge, and that's the word privilege that I wanted you to see. Charge is exousia. Exousia, this particular Greek word, means a, a responsibility that's been given to you, that's been granted to you. Something that you've been charged with. So you get to exercise a responsibility that is not your own, that's been entrusted to you. In other words, the phraseology is going after this thought of delegated influence. God has something that he's given to you and he expects you to do. The thought behind it is this. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has been not only resurrected, but he's about to ascend to the Father. And he says to all those who are following him, and apparently there's hundreds and hundreds of people that are gathered around him at that time, and he says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That phrase, authority, is exousia. All exousia on heaven and earth has been given to me. That same charge he gives to us. Those of us who understand that he's talking about the church here, he's talking about his followers He's putting his servants in charge. So the doorkeeper in this case is not only controlling access to the house, he's got a responsibility to keep awake, to stay awake. And he uses this phrase, stay awake, Gregorio. It's the third one I said you would see in just a moment. To keep awake and watch. Why is that so significant? Because it's got this meaning of being vigilant. And it's written in the present tense, which means you keep on being vigilant. It's not a one-time thing. It's something you do routinely. You do it regularly like is in every day. So catch what's going on here. Jesus is speaking directly to his followers. He's saying, you're responsible to keep alert, to keep watch, to dangers and opportunities. Well, what kind of dangers? Well, that false teachers will arise, false religions, those kind of dangers, and the natural disasters, and things that will come against you, attackers, and you'll be in jeopardy, you will find people trying to persecute you, those kind of things to be alert for, but also for opportunities because no one knows the day when the owner will return. So the owner in this case would never give this kind of an assignment if he didn't know that there was capacity among the people whom he's charged to carry out the command. Well, in the first century, a doorkeeper's role was really prominent. It was a huge responsibility, but a lot of privilege with it because he held the master's keys and he kept unwanted visitors from coming into the estate. But along with the prestige of the position came this awesome responsibility. In this case, what this is driving at church is that we are the doorkeepers. We've been given this responsibility. Okay, I got a huge responsibility then. What is my role as a doorkeeper? That's what I want to know. What is Jesus charging me to do? Well, the doorkeeper's job is to live faithfully. And in light of living faithfully in this present world to avoid distractions, being attentive to all the signs, constantly watching what's going on on the horizon. What am I supposed to be aware of? 
ever aware that attacks will come and be ready at any hour for the return of the master. That's the doorkeeper's job. You and I are presently in this intervening time. Between 33 AD and February 7th, 2021, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We've got this long intervening time of the stuff that he was speaking of in the distant future. And we find ourselves in this intervening time, the owner is away, but he's coming back again. Amen. Two people got it. Okay. But he's coming back again. Right. Okay. We understand that. That's what he's driving at here. He could return at any time. Now here's Jesus charge to you. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. I'm noticing as I'm reading this that being unaware of the actual day of his return is no excuse. It doesn't give you a pass. It doesn't say, well, you didn't know, so, you know, you're okay. There's no excuse for unpreparedness. In the first century, there's four Roman watches, and the, the Roman watches are broken up into quarters, as you can imagine, like three-hour quarters, and so they've got the first watch from six o'clock to nine o'clock, the second from nine to three, then you've got the rooster watch, and you've got the dawn watch, it goes 12 to three, three to six. Well, Mark is writing to primarily Gentiles. At the time that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, he's got a Greek audience they understand the Roman watches. He's not referring to the Hebrew watch. He's referring to the Roman watch. He breaks it up that way, and he gives four illustrations of that. And Jesus knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to. Why even bring that part in there? A very simple illustration. Because the ancient road systems in this world, they were infested with thieves. You would never expect an owner of an estate who's really successful and wealthy to travel at nighttime. He'd become a target of the thieves. Thus, Jesus' point. See, you could be completely caught off guard thinking, no way he's going to return there. And he's saying, be aware, that is exactly the time, the very time you're tempted to let your guard down. He's here in that moment. So Jesus ends it with this charge that could almost make the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up if you really understand what he's saying. Look with me at this very last statement, Mark 13, 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That Jesus ends with that command is no accident, church. That he ends with stay awake as his final thought, four words, I say to all. Who's the all? Well, the all is a much bigger audience than just the 12 disciples gathered on the Mount of Olives. He's saying, what I say to you, 12 disciples, I say to all believers, from James and John and Peter and Philip in 33 AD, all the way into the 21st century to Billy Graham, and to you, I say to all believers of all time, anyone who will ever believe in Jesus, this is the word of God to all believers in every age from 33 AD to 2021. Check this. He's two days away from the crucifixion. 
He's going to die for those believers in every age. I don't know about you, but I've stood at the foot of the bed of people who are on their deathbed. Deathbed thoughts are preeminent thoughts. I've been in the room when people have passed. I've been in the room when people have uttered those last words. Those are the words you hang on to. If you're a family member or a friend and you hear someone utter those last thoughts, you really know that those are important words to those people. These are Jesus' most preeminent thoughts. He's on his deathbed, if you will, and he has gathered before him those who are most precious to him and to all of those who will be precious to him as they become believers. And he has his final and most important words at the end of the Olivet Discourse. Stay awake. Okay, how does this apply to my life? I think we'd all agree that 180 degree opposite of staying awake is being asleep. Being on guard duty, not being on guard duty, being derelict. We'd have to all agree that the opposite is sleeping. Jesus is talking here about spiritual laziness, the capacity that we have to be distracted. Instead of being diligent and having vigilance about us, rather becoming completely distracted. Well, how does that happen to us? Well, on one level, just a rudimentary issue because this, this is a, an example of where church people go. On one level, it, it goes to the issue of the temptation to think it's more important to debate with somebody over the day of Jesus coming rather than the fact that he is coming. You can identify issues of all kinds, and I can guarantee you that God's people will be right there with that issue debating it, no differently than the rest of the world. We have this capacity as church people to get so distracted, and I'm including myself in this. We can get so distracted with the little issues that we miss the bigger issues. What do I mean by that? Well, this goes to the issue of the temptation to waste countless hours on video games and meaningless television programs. This goes to the issue of the temptation to be consumed with social media and, and the wasting hours of scrolling through news feeds that go no place. It goes to the issue of getting into debates with people over politics. It goes to the issue of arguing with people over COVID, COVID protocols. It goes to the temptation of the capacity that we have to stack up on toilet paper rather than being convinced that there's people around us going to hell. Is that getting a little prickly for you? Does it get a little bit too personal? Jesus left us here as doorkeepers. We've got this military command from the commander talking to his people, the church of all ages, and he left us here as doorkeepers. How are you doing with that? And I'm asking myself that question. How are you doing with that? Are you keeping the distractions at bay? Are you focused on the things that he says to be focused on? Here's a question to ask yourself. How will Jesus find you? Will he find you asleep? Consumed with the distractions? Or is he going to find you laser-focused on this task that the king charged you with? 
Mind you, I'm not questioning whether or not you're saved. I'm not questioning whether or not you're going to heaven. I'm asking, are you carrying out the responsibilities that the king charged you with? These kind of tasks, how are you doing with that? Well, what should we be then praying against? I'm, I'm asking myself this in two forms here. What should we be watching for and praying against? I'm going to challenge you to come up with a list this week. And on that list, you need to maybe create a list of things that are distractions in your life. And I mean, take this really seriously. And in that list, you've got to include everything which has a tendency to lull you into sleep. And if you want to see a good contrast, just this week, maybe use this week as a study week, just observe how the world around you, how the population of this planet has become so focused on all things temporal. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Watch that. And then check yourself and say, is that me? Has something gained control of my heart? Watch, Jesus says. And if you come to the conclusion that, yeah, that thing has a hold of me, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your responsibility is to repent. Get on your knees before the Father and say, that's me, God. I, I need forgiveness over that issue. I have been asleep at the switch. Something has gained control of my heart, and you've got to pray powerfully. You have to pray powerfully to break that in your life, that God would keep you from yielding to that. And, and lest you think it's unique to our generation, let me take you back to 1832. Look with me on the screen. This is Charles Simeon. If you don't know Charles Simeon, he's an old dead theologian, brilliant guy. Seeing how the whole world is led captive by those distractions, we should tremble for ourselves day and night and treat God to leave us destitute of all earthly things rather than to give us over to the love of them. You may think that in the 1800s they didn't have any distractions. Well, not on the scale that you do today, but there were distractions. We're responsible for the distractions in our age. Okay, so if those are the things we're supposed to pray against, what should we be watching and praying for? I hear this. Four times, four times Jesus used this word watching in that short little parable, watching for the return. I'd have to come to the conclusion that's pretty heavy on his heart. Would you not agree? It's got to be really heavy on your heart. If those are your final statements and you say that over and over again, why watching? I told you last week, watching is always in the sense of readiness in the Bible. Readiness is always in the sense of salvation. Watching for salvation. What should we be watching and praying for? Well, we have to break that down into two categories. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't yet prayed to Jesus to make him Lord and Savior of your life, ask him to forgive you of your sins, then you're unprepared to meet God. And I would say to anyone who's unconcerned or unprepared to meet God, I want to ask you this question. Are, are you willing to buy a ring doorbell for your home, but unwilling to take care of your soul? What's more valuable to you? Your soul is certainly more precious than your property. 
Jesus says, what good does it do to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Are your concerns of your possessions greater than those of eternity? I would challenge you right now to get on your knees and say, God, I need you. See, the consequence of being unprepared and unconcerned is awful. You have to stand before God as the judge, not as the savior. So first and foremost, pray to be found ready at whatever moment he calls you from this planet, either through death or through his coming, to be found in Christ when you stand before him. And that can't happen through your own righteousness. That always surprises people to hear that. You can't earn your way before God. You need Jesus as your Savior. Say amen if you agree with that. You do. You're going to lift the cup and you're going to lift the bread in just a moment to affirm that you believe that you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that he died for you because you can't earn your way to heaven. You need a Savior to forgive you of your sins. You can't be good enough. So first and foremost, pray to be found ready. That, that's to the non-believer, not yet a believer. I would say this to a believer, though. Pray, and maybe you'll use this communion time when you examine your soul to do this. Pray to be renewed in your zeal for the things of Jesus. Do you need fresh wind in your sails this morning? Can you look back on a time in your life when you had a greater alertness than what you have right now? Have you allowed yourself to become distracted by the things of the world? Come back to this, forgetting all the things that are behind, pressing on to that which is ahead, laying hold of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And I promise you, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's our God. In just a word, to both groups, not yet a believer and maybe a believer, seek to be ever ready to meet God because he's coming and he's coming again. It's a great transition to communion. I want you to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hear this in a fresh new way this morning. Let me read this to you. If you're new to New Hope, this is our tradition to always read this paragraph before we receive the elements of communion. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. This is what was delivered to him directly from the Lord. He said this in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Check verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Did I leave something out? You know your Bible, you know that I did. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How horrible would it be if it just ended with, you proclaim the Lord's death by lifting the communion cup? How awesome is it that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Because he's coming again, right? And so you lift the cup and you lift the bread as a witness to the person on your right and the person on your left. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you're about to do. This is why this is so awesome. Don't be lulled into sleep. And just think of this as another distraction. This is the word of God. You proclaim, church, and what you're about to do 
Not only that he died for you, that he's coming again for you. So we get this huge warning, verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm going to challenge you to use this time of examining. If you're new to New Hope, we do this all the time. We allow you time, a moment in your chair, to examine yourself and your relationship to God. Maybe you're examining right now is just pleading with God to give you that fresh new wind in your sail. Whenever you're ready, come up to the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. This time right now, Michael plays in the background. This is for you. Come when you're ready. It's your opportunity to witness to the person on your right and on your left. Would you stand with me? Be a witness for the things of God. If you're able to stand, please do. Maybe you have your elements at home. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He held up bread and he said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, we praise you that you gave us uh, an instrument to remember because we're so prone to forget and so prone to be distracted. Thank you for the blessing of communion so that we would remember what you did for us and for the reminder that you're coming again. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have gathered. I pray for Father, for those who are not yet believing that you would draw them into relationship with you. Let your Holy Spirit be active today. God, I pray for that among New Hope Church. I pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.